Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. And for our feature today, we will hear IER reporter Enrique Sands talk about the EPA delisting Superfund site Uniroyal. That's coming up later in the program, but first, your environmental headlines. Indiana is one of 15 states that relies on coal more than any other energy source for its power according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. That same source says 20 states in America get their power mainly through natural gas. Six states rely mainly on hydroelectric power sources, with six others relying most heavily on nuclear power. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration's Monthly Energy Review October 2020 report, the consumption of coal continues to decrease. During a 12-year span from 2000 through 2011, coal consumption in this country exceeded 1 million short tons 11 times. By 2018, coal consumption was down to 700,000 short tons. In 2019, according to the report, consumption was down to 600,000 short tons. Through the first nine months of 2020, consumption was down even further. Energy companies are moving away from coal and into more environmentally friendly alternatives. Indiana is listed among the 10 worst states for air pollution. Indiana and Michigan Power, INM, is in the process of adding significant renewable energy sources, according to the company. In 2021, the St. Joseph Solar Farm will go online and generate up to 20 megawatts of energy, more than doubling their solar resources. In addition, earlier this month, INM announced it is planning to add 450 megawatts of wind and solar energy, potentially combined with battery storage technology. Indiana is clearly in the midst of a transition to more renewable energy sources. Power generated by coal in Indiana has dropped from more than 90% at the turn of the century to just under 60% today. At the same time, there have been tremendous increases in the price of energy in Indiana, increases that far outpace national averages. This price hike is partially due to some coal-fired plants operating at a loss. There are 16 coal-fired power plants in Indiana. According to the National Mining Association, Indiana coal mines provide 5,599 direct jobs and support an additional 10,834 jobs. The Indiana Department of Education said it is working to identify and correct deficiencies that led a national panel to award the state a D grade for its public school climate education standards. 
The three scientist panel recruited by the National Center for Science Education and the Texas Freedom Network Education Fund reviewed the state of Indiana's public school science standards to address climate change, giving it an overall degrade, and called the state's approach to climate change education abysmal. The state received individual failing marks for its approaches to teaching basic principles of climate change, like the fact that climate change is actually happening and is affecting nature and society. Human activity is largely responsible for the changes. Only six states received a lower grade than Indiana. WBAA, an NPR radio station at Purdue, reports that Indiana lags behind other states when it comes to closing toxic coal ash ponds safely. That's according to a new report by the Hoosier Environmental Council, or HEC. Exposure to coal ash can cause cancer, damage your nervous system, and cause other health problems. Indra Frank with the HEC said other states like Virginia, Florida, Tennessee, Georgia, and the Carolinas have shown coal ash can be contained safely in cement or in lined landfills on high ground. North Carolina alone has required Duke Energy to excavate 80 million tons of coal ash at its facilities in the state. Quote, yet in Indiana, we're seeing the state starting to approve plans that would leave coal ash in the floodplain and contaminating groundwater, end quote, Frank said. Instead of removing the coal ash, some Indiana utilities plans call for capping ponds in place without a protective liner. Building a cap over the top of the coal ash prevents precipitation from soaking downward into the coal ash, Frank said. But if the bottom of the ash pond is unlined and deep enough, the groundwater still comes into contact with coal ash. And anytime water is in contact with coal ash, we get contamination of the water. Angeline Protoger is a spokesperson for Duke Energy in Indiana. She said the utility plans to cap half of its coal ash ponds in place and excavate the other half, though Frank said some of that excavated ash will be consolidated into other capped ponds. Protoger said every coal ash pond is different and requires careful engineering, which is why federal law allows for both kinds of closures. Just how protective capping in place is has been challenged in court. Protoger said Duke also plans to monitor the groundwater at capped sites for at least 30 years. Coal ash concerns have forced some Indiana utilities in the past to provide municipal or bottled water to residents, such as in the town of Pines near Nipsco coal ash disposal sites, as well as people living near Duke Energy's Cayuga, Gibson, and Noblesville plants. Protoger said Duke Energy found elevated levels of boron at those sites, but the federal government doesn't regulate boron in drinking water. She said providing other options for those residents was done out of an abundance of caution. The report said since new limits on coal ash and wastewater were put in place in 2015, many utilities now use dry ash storage instead of ponds. WFYI-FM reports a pilot program that provides solar panels for moderate to low-income families celebrated its first installation. The move to increase solar energy equity in Indianapolis is led by the city's Office of Sustainability and the nonprofit Solar United Neighbors, or SUN. 
Sun Indiana Program Director Zach Schalk said their mission is to help residents go solar. Quote, we do that so we can create a 21st century energy system that is clean, just, and equitable, that distributes benefits and control to local communities, end quote, Schalk said. We consider rooftop solar should be at the cornerstone of that energy system. Carmela Thomas's home on the near north side of Indianapolis is the first to receive the solar panels free of charge. Before applying for the program, she had assumed solar energy was out of reach. Quote, I'm looking forward to my light bill being zero to nothing and eventually them paying me in credits, end quote, Thomas said. The city plans to outfit four more homes before the end of the year. Indianapolis Mayor Joe Hogsett said he's proud of the pilot program that promotes inclusivity. The initiative is part of Thrive Indianapolis, the city's first sustainability action plan. Indianapolis has a goal to have 20% of its energy coming from renewable sources by 2025. San Francisco's Board of Supervisors has unanimously approved an ordinance that bans the use of natural gas in all new buildings. Instead, it requires them to depend on electricity. The ordinance will go into effect in June 2021 and apply to over 54,000 homes and 32 million square feet of business space that are scheduled for construction. About 12 other U.S. cities, most of which are in California, have passed bills banning gas for new construction. The largest city to pass such a ban is San Jose. It did so last year. However, San Francisco's ban is the most stringent and the one that passed most rapidly. The ban will reduce the city's climate impact. Natural gas is San Francisco's second largest source of climate heating pollution and accounts for about 40% of the city's emissions. Overall, natural gas is the cause of 80% of emissions from the city's buildings. Besides the climate benefits of the ban, gas stoves are a massive source of indoor pollution, releasing nitrogen oxide. According to Denise Grab, manager of the Rocky Mountain Institute's Carbon-Free Building Program, quote, all electric new construction will also save money, both through cheaper upfront costs and by avoiding unnecessary spending on gas pipes that would drive up gas utility bills, end quote. The proposed Yazoo Backwater Pumps project in Mississippi would drain and destroy 200,000 acres of critical wetlands. It would harm some of the nation's richest habitat, which supports over 450 species of birds, fish, and other wildlife. The EPA vetoed this massively expensive project in 2008, but it's back on the table. The pumps would cost taxpayers $440 million. The project's advocates say it's designed to protect communities from flooding, but it's actually designed to benefit industrial agriculture by draining wetlands. Recent analyses by the Army Corps of Engineers found that even with the pumps in place, 68% of the area would continue to flood. Opponents of the project said that instead of promoting this obsolete and expensive project, the Army Corps could be working to provide effective, affordable, and immediate flood relief for people in Mississippi's southern delta while protecting the wetlands. 
Ways to ameliorate the flooding problem are elevating roads, houses, and other buildings, and encouraging voluntary buyouts for those who have experienced repeated flooding. The George W. Bush administration's EPA conducted a thorough analysis before issuing its 2008 veto based on the pump's environmental impacts. The EPA raised important concerns about the project's economics and found that less damaging, more cost-effective alternatives to floodplain management had not been considered adequately. A Mississippi district federal judge upheld the veto, and the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed the judge's ruling. The EPA has reconstituted its independent science advisory board with new members. At the helm is John Graham, an IU professor of environmental affairs, who was appointed to the board in 2017. Three years ago, the Union of Concerned Scientists placed him on a list of people not to pick for the board. As administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs in the George W. Bush administration, Graham opposed various regulations that automakers also opposed. He has been a longtime consultant to the tobacco and chemical industries. The Science Advisory Board is intended to be an outside, independent consulting group on the EPA's policies, with about 40 of the country's leading scientists appraising the science behind the EPA's policy proposals. It's not only Graham who has ties to the industry. The EPA is increasing industry representation in general, with fewer academics on the board. For instance, one of the new appointees is Kenneth Munt, a consultant with Cardinal Chem Risk, who critics say has a record of working to refute science on the hazards of tobacco and various chemicals. According to Jenna Reed of the Union of Concerned Scientists Center for Science and Democracy, quote, Kenneth Munt is pretty much a classic product defender. He has been employed by the chemical industry on pretty much every harmful chemical you could think of to defend it and downplay the science of it, end quote. Indigenous nations, local communities, and the conventional fishing industry have raised their voices to oppose new federal legislation that would open federally controlled waters to large-scale ocean aquaculture, placing the oceans and our food supply at risk. Ocean aquaculture is a euphemism for industrialized large-scale factory fish farms. In May, President Trump issued an executive order targeted at cutting regulatory protections and environmental reviews of factory fish farms. For years, federal agencies have been promoting factory fish farms in federal waters. Ocean industrial fish farms are harmful. First, they pollute. Waste, excess food, and antibiotics and other chemicals pollute ocean water, encouraging algae growth, which leads to habitat loss and the annihilation of ocean life. Second, they spread disease. Outbreaks of diseases and parasites can spread to wild fish populations, killing them or making them unsafe for human consumption. Third, fish escape. About 2 million fish escape from fish farms every year, forcing non-native species into the ecosystem and disturbing indigenous fisheries. Last, they harm fishing communities. Factory fish farms destroy fishing jobs by underselling wild fish. The result is lost jobs in coastal communities. According to the environmental organization Food and Water Watch, quote, 
Despite the hype from agribusiness and industrial fish companies, it's clear that factory fish farms solve zero problems and create a whole lot of new ones, end quote. The U.S. Department of Energy, National Aeronautical and Space Agency, and assorted nuclear labs want to install nuclear reactors on the moon and eventually Mars. They haven't addressed the issue of nuclear waste. On Earth, nuclear power plants have created hundreds of thousands of tons of nuclear waste that is piled up with nowhere to go, with some of it releasing radiation that's contaminating the air, water, and soil. The Moon and Mars would become the latest nuclear dumping grounds. The idea is to place small modular reactors on the heavenly bodies, supposedly fulfilling the needs of humans living in space for extended periods. Since each of those mini-reactors would have an output of only 10 kilowatts, it would require multiple reactors on the Moon or Mars to fulfill the necessary functions for their human visitors. So far, there's no certified design, no test reactor, and no foolproof way to send a reactor to the Moon. Despite all that, the year 2026 is the target date for launching the first reactor on the Moon. Though no reactor design has yet to be identified, it would most probably use highly enriched uranium, which would place the reactors in violation of nuclear proliferation standards because such uranium is used in nuclear weapons. As Dr. Edwin Lyman of the Union of Concerned Scientists put it, quote, this may drive or start an international space race to build and deploy new types of reactors requiring highly enriched uranium, end quote. And now for our feature, we will hear IER reporter Enrique Sands tell about the EPA delisting the Superfund site Uniroyal. What we've done during this administration is focus on the results of getting these sites cleaned up and delisted so that they can be reused by the public, it removes the environmental contamination, and it provides property for for. Um, local communities to redevelop or use for parks. That was EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler talking to The Federalist about the Trump administration's Superfund actions in the last four years. The EPA is touting the full and partial removal of 27 Superfund sites from a list tracking the nation's most contaminated sites as Trump administration victories, despite decades of cleanup, persistent contamination threats, and concerns expressed by local authorities. The EPA fully deleted 14 Superfund sites and partially deleted 13 sites, including three in Indiana from the National Priorities List. In Indiana, the Douglas Road Uniroyal Inc. landfill in Mishawaka, the Fort Wayne Reduction Dump, and the USS-led Superfund site in East Chicago were partially deleted from the MPL. But some environmental threats remain at those sites. The deletions mean specific conditions for cleanup set at the time the sites were added to the MPL have been fully or partially met. Partial deletions allow developers or investors to make money off the delisted portions of a site even as cleanup of toxic substances continues at other parts of the site. What we've done during this administration is focus on the results of getting these sites cleaned up and delisted so that they can be reused by the public. Um, it removes the environmental contamination and it provides um, property for, for um, local communities to redevelop or use for parks. The Trump administration has prioritized deleting Superfund sites from the NPL, pursuing a historic rate of deletions, while claiming them as environmental victories for the administration. 
In the first year of the Trump administration, the EPA deleted two sites from the MPL and partially deleted four. The EPA then deleted 18 full sites and four partial sites in 2018. In 2019, the EPA deleted 12 full sites and 15 partial sites. But the deletions, in most instances, are not due to any special action taken by the EPA to get those sites cleaned up. The deletions are the culmination of decades worth of cleanup spanning multiple presidential administrations. And another thing, the deletion of the Indiana sites does not mean the threat of contamination is over. The partial deletion of the Douglas Road Uniroyal Inc. landfill in Mishawaka could leave several types of contamination behind, a fact that has led local officials to voice their concerns. The site is located south of Interstate 80 between apartment complexes and shopping centers near West Douglas Road and Grape Road. Mishawaka Mayor David A. Wood submitted comments to the EPA in July telling the NPL deletion coordinator he was concerned about methane emissions building up in landfill gas vent wells. He wrote, We consider this situation as imminently hazardous to the safety of the public and are requesting that the vent wells be restored, operated, and maintained in perpetuity or until the issue is truly remedied. Woods also expressed concerns about coal ash contamination at the site which may have led to elevated levels of arsenic, iron, and lead in groundwater monitoring wells. Those concerns remain, even as the site is deleted from the national priorities list. The site was formerly a gravel pit that was later used as a repository for waste from the Uniroyal Plastics Inc. plant between 1954 and 1979. The company dumped more than 302,000 gallons of toxic solvents like methyl ethyl ketone, toluene, acetone, and hexane along with dozens of tons of paper, woodstock, rubber, and plastic scrap at the landfill for nearly 20 years. Groundwater contamination was found at the site in 1971 and the Indiana State Board of Health ordered it closed. Between 1971 and 1979, the company used the landfill exclusively for coal ash, dumping more than 79,000 tons of fly ash over the years. Coal ash is toxic waste created by burning coal. It can contain mercury, lead, arsenic, and many other metals and elements that could cause cancer, lung and heart problems, or even death. Fly ash is coal ash ground to a fine powder. The site was first added to the national priorities list in 1989. That year, the state of Indiana and Uniroyal signed a consent decree where the company agreed to perform a remedial investigation and a cleanup feasibility study. But the company then filed for bankruptcy in 1991 and would not fulfill its contractual obligations. In 1994, EPA investigators found a carcinogenic volatile organic compound known as vinyl chloride in six residential wells at levels seven times the amount required for the agency to take action to remove the compound. Investigators found that groundwater under the landfill was discharging into the nearby Jude Creek, placing about 50 homes at risk for potential contamination. By 1996, the EPA and the state of Indiana agreed on a plan to address the contamination. The site was split into two 16-acre operating units, OU1 and OU2. About 2,200 cubic yards of contaminated soil was excavated at OU1 and the area was capped. The remedy at OU2 was more complicated, with the plan calling for the installation of five groundwater extraction wells, wetlands, and a filter strip to treat wetland effluent. In 2018, the site was purchased by a Wyoming-based Greener Investment Holdings LLC, which entered into discussions with the EPA in 2019 about its potential future use. The cleanup plan eventually reduced contamination at the site, 
although vinyl chloride and arsenic are still being detected. By May of 2020, the Indiana Department of Environmental Management and the EPA agreed that the 1996 cleanup agreement objectives for OU1 had been met, and the EPA began the process for partial NPL deletion the following month. The EPA told Wood that IDEM would continue to monitor the methane until it is no longer a threat. The EPA also said that contamination affecting groundwater at the site was due to OU2, which is not being deleted from the priorities list. The partial deletion was finalized September 30th. OU2 will remain on the NPL until groundwater meets federal and state maximum contaminant levels for arsenic and other contaminants. And for Eco Report, I'm Sarah Callanan. And I'm Patrick Callanan. And now for our events calendar. Here comes the beautiful full beaver moon on Saturday, November 28th. Stop by Spring Mill State Park to learn all the lore and history of the full beaver moon and the adaptations of the American beaver. Meet at the Lakeview Activity Center for a one-mile moderate hike around the lake from 7 to 8 p.m. It's time for the Monroe Lake Holiday Hiking Challenge that will take place over four days from Thursday, November 26th through Sunday, November 29th. Forget about shopping and holiday stress. Spend your time outside and plan to hike all of Monroe Lake's trails and complete the challenge activities on each trail. Each trail has one challenge station. When you complete the activity, take a photo to document it. Everybody who completes the challenges and submits their photo set by Sunday, November 29th, will be entered into the prize drawing. The marked trail map and the submission link will be posted on the Facebook event page the evening of Wednesday, November 25th at bit.ly slash 2020 Monroe Hiking Challenge. You have four days to complete the challenge. If you don't have access to Facebook, send a request to jvance at dnr.in.gov no later than 8 p.m. on November 26th. Questions should be directed to Jill Vance at 812-837-9967. Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area is hosting a Hooping Crane Viewing Day on Saturday, November 28th from 10 a.m. to noon. Meet at the Visitor Center for a chance to view one of the rarest birds in North America. Attend a short presentation about the history of whooping cranes and then drive a short distance to view the birds. Registration is required to attend. Go to IN Fish and Wildlife Whooping Crane Viewing Eventbrite.com. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's feature was produced by IER reporter Enrique Sands. David Lyman wrote the script, and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. 
Juliana Daly compiled the events. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.